You are listening to a Sunday morning message from River Corner Church. River Corner Church is a growing church community of everyday people who gather to worship God, follow Jesus, and journey through life together. You are invited to gather with us on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. If you have any questions about something you heard in this message, or if you want to learn more about our growing church community, visit us online at rivercornerchurch.com. For the past few weeks, we've been in a series journeying through Mark, a series in which we've called The Time Has Come. Mark's gospel, or his narrative on the life, the ministry, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus is the only eyewitness account to call itself a gospel or a carrier of the good news and the goodness of God. And Mark starts with a proclamation of Jesus. Jesus is wandering through the villages, the Galilean villages, preaching, the time has come. Repent and believe the good news. Or see for yourself now that God's presence is breaking in here and now. Not just in the yet to come, not in heaven, but heaven, the eternal reconciliation and restoration God has promised is making a difference here and now. And through each of those stories that we've looked at up to now, we've seen how Jesus has declared as he's liberated people from disease, as he's liberated people from demonic activity, as he's liberated them from their uh, social conditions, as he's liberated them even from the threats of nature. And we've seen how Jesus has continually said, the time has come, repent and believe. Right now, God is doing a thing. He's making something new. And you should not only behold it, not only see it, but to reach out and grab it. And so this morning, we're going to continue that idea as we look at Mark 9, 9, 14 through 29. And this is a story that, if we grew up in the church, we're probably really familiar with. But I'm hoping that we can take a few new insights away from it uh, as we go through it this morning. And we're going we're gonna to read it first, and I'm going to offer some thoughts. But as I read it, I invite you to pay attention to what word, what phrase, what image or idea, or even a question comes up to you. So what word, what phrase, what image or idea. And I'll give you space after I read it for you to share those things. Mark 9, 14 through 29. It would be helpful if I put that passage on the, on the screen. When they came to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and the teachers of the law arguing with them. And as soon as all the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder and they ran to greet him. What are you arguing with them about? He asked. A man in the crowd answered, teacher, I brought you my son who is possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him on the ground. He foams at the mouth. He gnashes his teeth and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. You unbelieving generation, Jesus replied. How long will I stay with you? How long will I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. So they brought him, and when the spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into a convulsion. He fell down to the ground and he rolled around, foaming at the mouth. Jesus asked the boy's father, how long has he been like this? From childhood, he answered. It has often thrown him into a fire or water to kill him, but if you do anything, take pity and help us. If you can, said Jesus, everything 
is possible for the one who believes. Immediately the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe, help me overcome my own belief. I love that line. When Jesus saw that a crowd was now running to the scene, he rebuked the impure spirit, and he said, you deaf and mute spirit. He said, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. The spirit shrieked, convulsed him violently, and came out. And the boy looked like a corpse that many said, he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him to his feet, and he stood up. After Jesus had gone indoors, his disciples asked him privately, Why couldn't we drive it out? He replied, this kind can only come out through prayer. Now, as you read that passage, a passage you may know well, what word, what phrase, what image, idea, or question comes up to you as you read it? Just shout out some things. Is there anything that stood out to you that's never stood out to you before? Yeah, it's an interesting statement from Jesus, right? What are you arguing about? Like, that's the first thing he says, coming down the mountain, right? He's just like, what are you guys arguing about? All right? Anyone else? I like the way Jesus said in verse 23, if you can. Yeah. Kind of like, When I was reading this, I was... Uh, I was thinking of growing up, and you know, growing up in school, if you said something wrong, often a teacher would repeat back to you what you said. And one of those cases that I often remember is you would say, can I use the restroom? And she would say, I don't know, can you? And, and that's kind of what Jesus, because the right answer is, may I use the restroom? And, and so uh, that's one of the things we see Jesus doing here is it's, he's truly a teacher. He's saying, if you can, like, are you paying attention to the words that are coming out of your mouth? That's interesting, yeah. Anyone else? What stands out to you? The reaction the spirit and the young boy had when he met Jesus. Yeah, no words, just complete confrontation leads to reaction. Yeah. It's good. I wonder if it had that same reaction with the disciples. I suspect not. Anyone else? Anybody have questions come up for him? What's interesting for me in this story is what happens right before this. In Mark's account of the life and ministry of Jesus. And early on in this series, we looked at Mark, and we looked at he traveled at Peter's side, and then Luke's, and Paul's, and Barnabas's, and then came back to Paul after they had a little spat. But in Mark's account, as he's hearing from Peter in this uh, account of this story, Mark shares how Peter, right before the story, has a mountaintop experience in his faith journey. It starts with this overwhelming confession of faith for Peter that then goes on to involve some other divinely worldly encounters. Let me back up and just tell you what I mean by that. As Jesus and his disciples were spreading the good news, the goodness of God, throughout Caesarea and uh, Philippi, Jesus asked his followers one question. Who do people say I am? This happens right before here, right? It's in Mark 8. Who do people say I am? And the disciples of Jesus gave responses that they've heard among the villages. 
And they have a whole bunch of answers. And after Jesus hears them, I imagine him kind of sitting there nodding as they walk down the journey. He's probably drinking from his uh, flask a little bit, just hearing him out. And then he turns the question on them. But what about you? Who do you say I am? And in that moment, through his line of questioning, Jesus is establishing the foundations of faith, their belief, and figuring out why they are following him. It's essential for him that they are experiencing him for themselves and not building their faith on what other people say or what other people believe or what other people have experienced. The only foundation of faith must be their own experience. The teaching, convictions, and experiences of biblical leaders, of pastors, of bishops, and others are not enough for us to build our faith on. Jesus longs for us to have personal experiences with him that inform our why, that inform why we follow Jesus. And that's exactly what he's doing to his disciples here. And I believe he does that to us through many areas of our life, gets us to analyze what is my reason for following Jesus. We too must have a faith formed not on the back of others, but through the experiences that we have had with Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit. And Peter has one of those experiences. He has one of those moments where, equipped, empowered, encouraged by the Holy Spirit, he stands up and he says, you are the Christ. Now, at first glance, we tend to translate that uh, we assume Jesus is seen as the Messiah automatically by Peter. The word in Hebrew for Messiah and Christ is the same. But it doesn't mean, there are other people within the uh, Hebrew and the Greek scriptures that have been called Christ, or uh, it's just translated different. The word Christ means anointed one. That's somebody who has been ordained in that moment by the Spirit of God or by the anointing of oil for something really special. Now, Jesus is a special kind of that anointing. He's the Messiah of that anointing. But there are other people that have served in anointed ways. And I'm not sure when Peter says, you are the Christ, that he's fully understanding that uh, he is the anointed one or the Messiah. And and I'll say that, we're going to see why I don't think that in a minute. But in that moment, he at least sees that there's something otherworldly, divine, unique about Jesus, that God has ordained him, anointed him for this moment, and he realizes that uh, there is an anointing on him. There's a favor of God on him. He's in the role of a Messiah-like character. And in that moment, Jesus says, good job, Peter, right? But don't go and tell anyone about it. Jesus still continues to want the other disciples to form their faith about him without the influence of others. Peter, that's great that you see it, but keep it to yourself for now. I need other people to build their faith on their own. And it's after that kind of holy confession uh, from Peter that Jesus begins to hint at his death. He begins to speak plainly, the scriptures say, not in parables or prophetic imagery, but he begins to just say, guys, this is what's, I'm going to die. Now, what's interesting to me is how Peter reacts to that statement. Peter has just said, you are Christ. And it literally then goes on to say, Peter begins to rebuke his teacher because he doesn't like what he's saying. How do you go from saying you are the Messiah to, right, um, 
Jesus, you got this wrong. That is not how this plays out. That is not my expectations for this moment. There's going to be an uprising. There's going to be a political overtake. I'm in this for like the ride or die moment. I'm not in it for whatever you're talking about because that sounds really weird. And so Peter goes from this, you are Christ, right? I definitely think he sees him as an anointed one, but still someone that he can try to mold into his expectations. And Jesus' response moves from, Peter, you've understood something really great to get behind me, Satan. Right? Mountaintop, all of a sudden back down in the valley. Peter, you're doing really good. Get behind me, Satan. And so Peter has this mountaintop experience that suddenly goes down into the valley. Peter goes from this moment where he sees the uniqueness, the divine purpose and sentness of Jesus, and now is just rebuking his teacher. Uh, and the good news is, by the way, we don't have to have our understanding altogether of who Jesus is. We don't have to have the right theology. It's good to push on for those things. But a simple confession of faith, understanding in just a simple way, is enough. And Peter models for that here. But Jesus rebukes Peter for his rebuke in return. And he calls him Satan, or the word Hasatan, which in uh, this understanding doesn't always mean the little red devil-like creature with a pitchfork that we think of. A Hasatan is anyone or anything that sets itself up against the divine purposes and wills of God. And we see that because Jesus immediately calls Peter Satan. And before Peter can start thinking, is he calling me the red devil, dude? He says, you have not the things in uh, mind of God, but the things of men. You're setting yourself up against God. You are opposing the ways of God by projecting your expectations on me. That had to be a humiliating experience, by the way, to go from, good job, Peter, to get behind me, Satan, right? And it, it probably was similarly frustrating for Jesus, who goes, Peter, you got this, but you don't get this, right? In light of this, Mark shares that Jesus teach something really important. He says, guys, you need to understand one thing about me. Following me means that if anyone wants to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Jesus calls all of us, all followers of Jesus, into a way of giving up our expectations and our ways of thinking so that we can live into the ways, the words, and the works of the Father. Now, Jesus, I mean, Peter is going mountaintop to valley, and all of a sudden, now he gets to go to mountaintop again. After that teaching, Jesus says, hey, Peter, James, John, I'm going up to a mountaintop. So they're literally physically going to a mountaintop. But it's also going to prove to be a spiritually driven trip as well. And he says, I want to come up with you. I want you guys to come up with me. And that story, in that story, Jesus is transformed or he's transfigured into this bright white presence. The scriptures say you can't even bleach clothe as bright as he was. And in that moment, Peter, James, and John see Moses and Elijah standing at Jesus' side. And Peter says, um, should we build like tents for you? And see, what happened, and the scriptures literally say that Peter was awkward and didn't know what to say in those moments. Do you guys ever have those moments where the situation is so awkward and you say something you should have never said? That happens a lot to me. You know, I probably shouldn't tell this story, but I'm going to. When I first started dating Katie, uh, she, 
I asked her out on a date, and she said, well, I kind of have a boyfriend, and then I didn't know what to say because it was awkward. I said, well, bring him too. The more the merrier. Like, you know, when you're in an awkward situation, you just say awkward things, right? You just say awkward things. And so, uh, thankfully, he was in California just to finish that story and the rest of this history, as you can assume. Uh, But let me tell you this. Peter is on top of this mountaintop. He's blown away by this otherworldly thing he's seen. And in that moment, suddenly he goes, wow, I have like a taste of heaven right here. I've seen the fathers of my faith. I totally see who Jesus really is. Let's build a house and live in this moment. Let's build a temple where we can just enjoy. How many of you want to live in the mountaintop experiences? When you you feel like you can feel God's presence, right? Let's just build shelter and live here. But that's not the point of mountaintop experiences. Peter is ready to put roots down to live in that moment. And once again, we see God speaks and reaffirms and reveals the identity of Jesus. But Jesus then leads them down the mountain. They can't stay on top of the mountain forever. And as they walk down, uh, Jesus gives them a gag order. He says, don't tell anyone about what you saw. How do you not go back to the rest of the 12 and go, Dude, Moses doesn't look like anything like Aunt Jeannie used to draw him. You know, how do you not have that? I mean, I'd be like, you know those flannel boards we had of Moses growing up? He's totally different. He's kind of crazier than we could even imagine. But Jesus tells him, don't share anything about this. And they seemingly are not shocked by what they saw. It says the only thing they come down the mountain talking about is this. Did Jesus say he's going to die? And that's what they're chewing on. And they begin to ask Jesus then about the messianic implications of Moses and Elijah, which one must come first, and who's serving in those roles. And that's the story that we read right here. That's the background of the story. As they're coming down the mountain, Jesus, James, John, and Peter see the rest of the 12 fighting or arguing with the teachers of the law, the Torah teachers, the rabbis, and the teachers, the priests. And as they walk up, they can tell that this situation has become quite tense. The scriptures tell us that they walk up to the rest of the disciples who are arguing with the teachers of the Torah. And there's a crowd looking on. And Peter has just left his mountaintop experience. He knows who Jesus is, then gets rebuked, then goes up the mountain again and has another worldly experiences. But now has come down into an argument. Talk about reality shock, right? Isn't this how life is? We'll have a really good moment. And then there's a really big fight that follows with somebody afterwards. This is just how humans are. It's important for us, though, to have these encouraging top-of-the-mountain experiences uh, where we don't have to face hardship or experience doubt or face trouble. But the reality is we don't stay in those. Jesus models that we live in those moments so that we can come down the mountain again. Faith is not to be lived in the absence of others. It's not meant to be lived in some spiritual bubble of other evangelical or Anabaptist followers of Jesus. But rather, it's to be lived in the valleys where real people, real problems, and little faith surround us in our days. William Barclay, he writes this. He says, the solitude is necessary for each of us to keep contact with God. But if in our search for essential solitude, we shut ourselves off from others, shut off our ears to their appeal for help, shut our hearts to hear their cries... That is not faith. The solitude is not meant to make us solitary. It is meant to make us 
better, able to meet and cope with the demands of everyday life. And we're going to see that's exactly the point of this story. We must remember in our lives that we cannot live on the mountaintop. It's important for us to come down. As they walk up to the scene, as they see this argument with the religious leaders coming on, uh, the crowd suddenly realizes Jesus is in their midst, and they begin to kind of crowd him and come around him. And I love this contrast, because on top of the mountain, as he's standing with Moses and Elijah, there's a cloud of God's presence that envelopes them, is how I think the NIV reads it. It just totally encases them. Now they come down the valley. And it's people with problems and pain and polarization that surround them. They're suddenly now surrounded by a life. I think there are a few things that we see from this start of this story that are important for us to process. Uh, The importance of community is in here. While some are resting, others are carrying the weight. We cannot and should not go alone. All of us have a part to play in the journey. Third, we see it's quite essential for us to live with tension in life. Following the ways, the words, and the works of Jesus will ultimately put us at tension with the other religious, cultural, and political spheres of society. And when we allow ourselves to be surrounded by them, to live in the middle of the pain and the problems, uh, we will experience the ways of Jesus. Now take note, as the crowd sees him, there's excitement to see Jesus. And I think that they're excited to see I don't think people today are excited to see followers of Jesus quite like they're excited to see Jesus. And I think that's important for us to think about. Rather, most of the church today seems to be distracted by gathering around certain celebrities or their own movements or subcultures. And they lack the way that Jesus lived at the problem, the the center of people's problems and pains. And the first thing we see in the story is the difference the kingdom of God makes in the moment is simply being present with other people. He's in the middle of their pain, their problems. And at the start of the story, Jesus also models a way of caring for them. He chooses to live out of his human side when he asks the question, what are you arguing about? Jesus doesn't use his prophetic, divine, otherworldly knowledge to read the situation. He doesn't uh, walk in and start teaching and preaching. He doesn't walk in and drop a Holy Spirit bomb and try to do something really cool and charismatic. In this story, Jesus shows up in the middle of them And he just compassionately asks the question, what are you arguing about? And this is a chosen of tactic we see of Jesus often. He often asks an individual, what do you want? Or what do you believe? What do you want me to do for you? And we come so many times with answers into a situation. Jesus often, almost always, comes with questions. Certainly he had a knowledge of what was going on. But he models what it means to show up with care, a questioning and a listening not a telling or a teaching. And so the difference that the kingdom of God makes in a moment is done through listening to people. It's simply just hearing them. Now, in this story, Jesus acts like a doctor. He says, "Um, what hurts? Right? You ever go into the doctor's office? They probably can already see what's wrong with you because they've been trained in it. But they still ask, where does it hurt? Or what doesn't feel right? They, they diagnose the problem. And Jesus does that same thing. He asks them, what hurts? What is going on? And in the middle of this, a man speaks up who's at the center of the crowd's tension. And he says, this is all started because I brought my son. And those dudes who follow you around said you weren't here. So I asked them to do it. And they're, you know, pointless. They're the worst waiters and waitresses I've ever had in my life. They did nothing for me. And look, this is the problem. 
And Jesus begins to ask questions, right? And the difference the kingdom of God makes in this moment then is done through dialogue, having a conversation back and forth. And this story, by the way, shows that we all have our limits. The rest of the 12 were not able to do something. They reached their limit. Sometimes we have a limit of who we are or what we can do, and sometimes that limit shows up, as we see in this story, and it is not meant to be something that shuts us down, but causes us to grow, as we'll see in a little bit. A realization that there could be more than what we see at play, and so instead of giving up, you know, maybe we're supposed to grow in some way with our approach to the problem. But here it seems the disciples have given up They've probably tried to argue theology with the Pharisees, explaining why God isn't doing this anymore today, as we often do. Now, let me make a statement. As someone who's married to someone with epilepsy, we often read this story unfairly with epilepsy in mind. In this day, when a possession was diagnosed, epilepsy was not always diagnosed as spirit Uh, controlled and not all spirit controlled led to epilepsy. They had a belief in this time that what led to uh, this sort of convulsion was when a spirit could enter a person's uh, mind at a level where they lost control over their motor skills and responses. Uh, That's why they used the word impure spirit. Uh, We tend to look at the word impure. We tend to think of the word uh, that it's somehow scandalous or sexualized. But the idea is that there's just an evil thing at play. And there was no question that this was no medical thing. Matthew in Matthew 4 separates epilepsy from uh, demonic possession. But often when we read this story or we listen to spirit-filled types of pastors or people that are untrained, we tend to think that this person also had epilepsy. And then we get comments from people that say, are you sure that epilepsy isn't demonic, right? The reality is that the spirit had somehow gained access to the same places where the brain uh, is controlled by seizures as well. The more we give darkness into darkness, the, the more it seems to be able to get more control of us. In this story, Jesus appears to be frustrated. He began to explain that his disciples will soon leave him, and then he's going to die, and he's going to be brought back to life, and he's really trying to get them to realize they need to go out on their own. He sent them out, as we saw a few weeks ago, to liberate other people. He sent them out as a 12. He's going to send them out as a 72. And uh, in this moment, they fail to realize that they're being trained to do the words, the works, and the ways of Jesus. They just give up. They try to explain away with theology or teaching why this guy's son could not be healed. And we do this too often, sometimes because we fail to pray about it. We're doing it from our own strength, not looking at other angles. Now, Jesus even assumes this remark, this statement, that he can't stay with them and hold their hands forever. That's basically what he's saying, guys. How long am I going to have to stay here and hold your hands? I, I need to get back. I'm passing this on to you. And so he seems upset at the lack of the, the followers of Jesus. How many of you ever get upset with the lack of faith or other followers of Jesus or the church or denominations? Right? We often get frustrated with these things, but Jesus doesn't allow his frustration with those things to distract him from what God's doing in a moment. He says, bring the boy to me. Even when we're overwhelmed in a state of despair, It must not distract us from the mission that's needed to take the problem straight on. Again, William Barclay remarks, the surest way to avoid, oh, sorry, I have a delay there. The surest way to avoid pessimism and despair is to take the immediate action we can. And there's always something that can be done. And so what we see is the difference that the kingdom of God makes in a moment 
is just being persistent with our care for others. Now, as they bring to him, immediately, as we pointed out, this boy convulses. He has an immediate reaction. Some years ago, I was talking to a person that was very new agey and tried to read people's minds and auras. And, and as she talked with me, she said, I just can't get a read on you. She goes, I can read anyone. I just can't get a read on you. Well, to me, and I don't know for sure in this life, but I assume it's because the spirit at work in my life had protected me or uh, developed a, some sort of shield within me. And I think we see that kind of thing here in this passage, that uh, when we live, as Jesus is, by the spirit of God, it confronts the evil around us, even in ways that we're not aware of. And immediately the boy rolls to the ground and he begins to foam at the mouth, which at this time, most demon possession was also possessed when they believed the spirit was trying to take somebody's life. And that's what we see here. But immediately we see that Jesus doesn't do anything outside so far of talk, but there's a difference already being made. And the difference the kingdom of God makes in a moment is just simply living by the power of the spirit, Right? We never know what we're going to encounter, and the more we're prayed up and ready, it can make a difference. Now, the man's obviously at the end of his rope. From childhood, he's been caring for his son. And he, I would love to get into a talk. Uh, we don't have the time, but, I mean, how does a young child get this demon-possessed early on? It's, these are questions, or was it symbolic? Was it ethical? These are the things scholars like to debate, and I think it would be fun to talk about. But we see that this man's tired. He's been caring for his son who's had this problem for a long time. And he says, if you can do anything, right? Is there anything you can do? Then just take pity on us and help us, right? That word pity, like, let just let your emotions come out and feel just for a moment what I'm carrying. There's already a hint of faith in this man's voice, a belief that Jesus could help, but he's not fully convinced. And we see Jesus is able to respond even when there's just a little bit of faith at play. Earlier in Jesus' hometown, we looked at a story where Jesus was unable to do miracles because there was no faith in who he was. But here, we don't need a lot of faith to see Jesus move. Rather, heaven can make a difference in a moment when we live in belief or trust in belief. And Jesus responds to the man saying, what do you mean if I can? And this is meant to tease the man's faith out a little bit more. He then says to him, everything is possible for the one who believes. Jesus teaches on faith and belief a lot. He says it can move mountains, it can close us off, it can open the possibilities, as in this text, for what God can do. It's kind of like Jesus is saying, hey, buddy, it's not so much what I can do, but what the possibility is through your faith. So the cure of your son depends less on me, but on you. And to approach anything in the spirit of hopelessness would be to make it hopeless. And so to approach any situation with faith, even a little bit of faith, makes it a possibility. Perhaps the reason we see less miracles and healings today is because we've given more into a spirit of impossibility rather than the faith of what is possible. But Jesus continues to tease the man's faith out. And he says, I do believe. And this is my favorite line in this passage. Help me with my own belief. And Jesus gets the man to be honest about his condition. And it is in that we see that the difference the kingdom makes is the moment we, the way we live in the middle of pain and problems by trusting in what God is capable of. 
Now, at that point, the crowd just rushes in. They're taken back by what they see. And I get this image, you know, when we, when we turn on the TV and we see uh, pastors on the TV, there's always a crowd. We're always building bigger stages. But here, Jesus has seemed to have walked away from the crowd with the boy. The crowd tries to come in. And the moment that the crowd comes in, Jesus finishes up what he's doing before the crowd can get involved. He says, uh, come out of him and never enter him again. See, Jesus was concerned with the dignity of that boy. The difference the kingdom of God makes in a moment is that it provides dignity and not a show. Right? A couple of weeks ago, I saw a YouTube video where a pastor was claiming to be able to talk to a demon that was inside a person. And we get enthralled with these sort of shows. Jesus just ends it. He respects the dignity of that boy. In that moment, the boy is liberated. He falls. He collapses. They think he's dead. And in a second then, he stands up completely liberated into a new way of life. And then later, taken back, Jesus' disciples go, whoa, Jesus, you sent us out. And we did all that kind of stuff, but we couldn't do that. Why couldn't we do that? What was different? The kind can only be driven out by prayer, he says. Now, here's what I want you to take away from. In that story, did Jesus pray at all? So what prayer is he talking about? He's talking about the encounter he had on the mountaintop. See, the difference that the kingdom of God makes in a moment is when we're truly engaging God's rest and presence in the mountaintop so that we can come back and be prepared. Jesus could handle that experience, that encounter, because he had rested with God's presence so much on the mountaintop that he was recharged, that he was able to come down and hand it. See, the other disciples, they were down in the valley working, but they were working out of their own power, out of their own might. This passage highlights the need for us to rest in God's presence, to maintain close contact with God, to maintain our gifts. And it also tells us that if we want to make a difference, it's not about coming down the mountain with a message or some supernatural encounter. It's about coming down and being willing to listen, to dialogue, to care, and to trust. When we learn to do things from a place of being prayed up, we actually have more power than we realize. In a minute, we're going to close out in song, and uh, let me just pray as Rhoda comes up. So, Lord, as we continue our series, as we begin to get close to drawing Mark to a close, we continue to look at the ways that you equip us to make a difference here and now, with the power of what's yet to come. And Lord, help us to be good dialoguers and listeners. Help us to be prayed up in our mountaintop moments and to flip our script when we're in the valley and realize why we are there rather than longing to go back to the mountain. Thank you, Lord. Amen.